0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church Podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Second part tonight of the mystery and miracle of Israel Uh, Is two things the question of the Palestinians and Israel, and the question of Christians and Israel. And let me remind you again of the location and the situation. All of that darkened area is all Muslim Arab countries, and Israel is that little speck right in the center. And so, as you can see, they're totally and completely and utterly surrounded uh, by very hostile, for the most part, very hostile nations against Israel. And because of that, it has caused many, many problems. Now, let me just show you this slide because this is kind of tongue-in-cheek. In In the unjust occupation of Arab land... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's Israel. They're not occupying very much, are they? So somebody put that on for a bit of a, a bit of a, a joke, obviously, you know. But uh, first of all, we need to deal with, deal with the thorny issue of of the Palestinians, uh, because for many many years now, the unrest and the trouble that there's been in Israel and in the Middle East has always centered around the Palestinian problem, and. Israel stands accused by many nations and almost all of the world's media of brutality, persecution, apartheid, and even genocide against the Palestinian people. And because Israel is now strong militarily and has defeated all attempts at destroying them, uh, and even though uh, they will continue to try to do that, but Israel has been... Tremendous, and we saw that this morning in their study. We saw how after all of those wars, Israel still standing and is stronger than now than they were even at the beginning. But now a lot of the attention is turned to a- another way to attack Israel, and propaganda is a big tool in the armory of, of any enemy against somebody else. And. Israel gets lots of propaganda thrown at them. Uh, If they try to demonize Israel, the objective is to delegitimize Israel, to make Israelites so brutal and so bad and so wicked and so evil that the whole world will turn against them. Actually, one day, the whole world will turn against them. And the greatest battle that this earth has ever known will happen actually in Israel. And so... Almost all media outlets like CCN and the BBC, all of them are very, very pro-Palestinian to the point where it's almost ridiculous, but that is the case. And the latest boycotting of Israel, which is called BDS, Boycott, Disinvest, Disinvestment, and Sanctions Against Israel. In other words, they're trying to get people all over the world to stop buying. Products that are made in the West Bank, which is here, which is Palestinian and Gaza and up there in the Golan and East Jerusalem. And so they're trying to label that so that nobody will buy those goods. And that is to upset Israel economically. But as I said to you before, the trouble with that is that the people who are going to get hurt the most are the Palestinians. Because the Israeli companies that are in the West Bank in these places, they'll just simply pull out and they'll go somewhere else. Who's going to lose their jobs? It's going to be the Palestinians. So that's how crazy that system is. Uh, But you'd be surprised just how big this has become around the world. And Ireland, Ireland vigorously pursues this. I said this morning that Ireland, Southern Ireland particularly, has become very... Anti-Semitic. Now, they would say they're anti-Israeli, not anti-Semitic. But actually, there's no, really no difference, actually. And so, all this boycotting is trying to destroy the economy of Israel. And through doing that, then they can, as far as they're concerned, hopefully bring Israel down. Now, another thing, both north and south of Ireland, is that the trade unions are very pro-Palestinian. You go into many of our hospitals, particularly Belfast hospitals, you'll see pro-Palestinian signs up and, and things up for rallies and all kinds of things. Trade unions do this. And the irony is, this is so ironic, is that in the Palestinian areas, Hamas and the Palestinian Authority will not allow trade unions. They just won't allow it. And yet the trade unions here are fighting for them. And so it's a crazy situation. Uh, I once heard an Israeli say, uh, a lady when she was over here just uh, some months ago, she actually was a part of the Israeli uh, parliament, the Knesset, and then she became a, a reporter for, I don't know, some big newspaper in America. And uh, she met with Shen and representatives here. And she says that, Uh, They accused us of apartheid and genocide. And she says, well, do you understand what that word means, genocide? Do you understand what that means? You know, to to wipe out a whole block of people, a whole nation of people. She says, well, if that is the case, we're not doing a very good job of it. For she says, 20% of our population are Arabs. (laughs) And she says, actually, because of our democracy, that any one of those can stand for office they can be elected into Knesset, And many are. They go for elections. Some are actually in the Israeli parliament. So she says, we're not making a very good job of it. But she says, that's the propaganda that people doesn't understand that goes all around the world. And so that's happening all the time. In comparison, for example, the Palestinian Authority has not allowed elections in 11 years. So it's a bit rich, isn't it, really, when you think about it. Now back to the Palestinian question: Who are they? Where did they come from? How did the very name Palestine come about? Remember, this morning we talked about the sacking of of Jerusalem, particularly in AD 70, uh, through Titus the Roman, and how thousands and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, were uh, were slaughtered, hundreds of thousands taken into captivity. Jerusalem was racked and burned and the temple was burned down and the stones were thrown down and just, just as Jesus prophesied uh, before then. But about 60 years later, there was another uprising. Some had come back and some had maybe had stayed, but there was another uprising uh, by a, a Messianic figure called Bar Kokhba, which means son of the star. And so he rose up and had a rebellion but it was very swiftly put down and he was uh, executed, he was killed and after that the Romans then t- completely decimated any remaining Jewish community and they renamed Jerusalem Aelia Capitolina and they renamed Judea as Palaistenia and that's where we get the word Palestine from and that comes from Philistines knowing that the Philistines were the hated enemy of the Jewish people. They renamed it after the Philistine, just to add insult to injury. And so that's where the name actually came from in the very first place, all those years ago under the Romans. And so they tried to disgrace him by doing that. What about the current Palestinians? Well, the current Palestinians say that there was about a million Palestinians in the land in the 1800s before they were dispossessed by the Jews. All of this is trying to give the impression that this was always our land. The Jews came in, kicked us out, dispossessed us. This constantly, this propaganda is constantly picked up by the media, by universities and so forth. But history doesn't really record that. If it were true, where were all the mosques for a million Arab Muslims? And history doesn't show that. I read recently, by the way, I don't know how accurate this is, but I read recently that there's some, in Gaza today, there's some 900 mosques. That little strip of land there, Gaza, which is only about 27 miles long and about between four to seven miles at its narrowest and widest, there's 1.85 million Palestinians live in that strip of land. And it is said that there's something like 900 mosques there. Well, where were they before this when supposedly there was a million living in the 1800s? Palestinians is something that was a construct by the Grand Mufti, The Grand Mufti, Hajj, Muhammad, Effendi, Amin, El, Husseini. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Try saying that when you go home tonight. (laughs) And who is he? Well, let me just show you him. There he is. And there's one of his many statements. Arabs, he says, rise as one man and fight for your sacred rights. Kill the Jews wherever you find them. This pleases God, history, and religion. This saves your honor, God is with you. In the next slide, there he is with his good friend, Adolf Hitler. So that shows you where he's coming from and the hatred and desire to destroy the Jews. And so, this originated from mass immigration from Egypt and Saudi Arabia with the purpose of jihad. The Egyptian fighters ended up in Gaza. The Saudi fighters ended up in the West Bank. Now, once Israel had been assigned to be returned to the Jewish people, and Israel was given back to the Jewish people, had been assigned that 1917 by the British. The British had a mandate over all of what was called Palestine. And immediately, the Muslims began to pour into that region from other countries with the sole purpose to kill the Jews. But the British limited the amount of Jewish immigrants and not Arabs and Muslims... And so very quickly, they became the majority. And secondly, before those five Arab nations declared war on the fledging state of Israel in May, 1948, before they declared war, they told all the Arabs living in that area to get out, to move out quickly because they were going to attack and they were gonna slaughter all the Jews. They're gonna drive them into the sea And then when we do that, they said, then you can all come back and own the land and take all the Jewish homes and all the booty you can find. It'll be there for the taking. That was the plan. But we know from this morning that plan didn't work out. That plan did not work out uh, because in the end, Israel beat them and won that. And so not all those Arabs left Israel won that war of independence. Now, all the Arabs who did leave, suddenly they became the refugees. The refugees. And ever since that, for the past 68 years, those who left and their descendants who are now there are still called the refugees. The Jews, as a joke, they say they're the eternal refugees. The refugees. Well, the Israelis did not dispossess them. They left of their own accord. The surrounding Arab nations told them to leave. And most of them did leave. So they left of their own accord. But suddenly now, the refugees. Isn't it interesting also that none of those Arab nations, none of them offered them land to have their own Palestinian state. And I mean, there is plenty of land in those Arab nations. Not one of them did that. The reason why is because it was better for Islam and better for the Arabs if Israel stayed there so that they could have the refugee problem. And that's the way it has been ever since. Actually, they've given them very little help indeed. Most of the help the Palestinians are getting today is from the West. I read an article in the Daily Mail the other day that shocked me. It says that, you know that Great Britain has foreign aid. That's a big, big row within politics today. The billions and billions are given to foreign aid, to a lot of stupid ideas and all the rest of it. Millions upon millions upon millions are given to the Palestinians in Gaza. Plus what America gives, plus what other nations gives. And I read in the Daily Mail last week that those who are unemployed in Gaza can go every month and get a 1,000 pounds and that's coming from the West. Not coming from the Arab nations. It's coming from the Western nations. Billions upon billions upon billions of dollars are flooding into the Palestinian areas. What are they doing with it? But there you go. And so it quite suits the Arab Muslim nations to keep the refugees going in order to keep the war against Israel going. Now, the Palestinian Authority and Fatah and Hamas are not good to their own people, actually. Far from it. They rule them with an iron fist. They keep them strictly under control. That's why there's no elections. There's no trade unions. And by the way, if anybody's gay, I'm not saying if you're gay in here, but if anybody's gay that's listening to this, Israel is the only place where you have a gay parade. You could not have it in any Arab Muslim nation in the world. Otherwise, they would lock you up or they would kill you. But because of democracy in Israel, you can actually do that. And so, what have they done with all the billions and billions and billions of dollars? Bill Moss have dozens and dozens of sophisticated concrete tunnels to slip into Israel to fire hundreds and thousands of rockets at innocent men, women, and children. And that's what they've done with it. About four or five years ago, there was a a ship. I think it had gone from Turkey. And it was common to Israel. It was common actually to supposedly supply the Palestinians in Gaza. And the Israelis actually stopped it. And remember, the commandos went on board and there was shooting, there was killing. And the whole world was throwing their arms up and said, This is awful. This was relief for the poor Palestinians. But the Israelis always insisted that the that the cement that was on that, the cement that was on it, there was tons and tons of cement was not going to build schools, was not going to build hospitals, it was going to build tunnels so they could bomb us. And the world didn't believe it until the next big kickoff. And then the Israelis come in and they exposed the very tunnels that they said were not there. And so a lot of that money, that's what it goes to. Now, let me pause. Does this mean that all Palestinians are bad people? Does this mean that all Arabs are bad people? Does this mean that all Muslims are bad people? Of course not. No more than all Israelis are good people or all Jews are good people. There's good and bad everywhere. It's just unfortunate that the Palestinians particularly are being manipulated and controlled in order to blame Israel in all of their problems. And the whole world thinks if only the Rosalis would get out of the equation that the Middle East would be totally at peace, but that's not true. Over and over and over again, Israel has made land datas for peace. And the whole world said to them at one point, give up Gaza, give it to the Palestinians. Don't occupy it anymore. And so they did. 2005, they pulled all their troops out, they put their tanks out. All the settlers, all the, the Israeli homeowners that was there, they pulled all them out, and they gave the whole lot of Gaza to the Palestinians. What have they done with it? What have they done with it? Did they make that into a state? No. Were they satisfied with that? Of course not. Why? Because they want the whole land. The whole land. So giving them bits and pieces is not enough. No matter how much you give them, they want all the land. Because they believe it all belongs to them. So they want it all. That's what they say. Whenever the liberation organization whenever they took over under Yasser Arafat for several years uh, he was the world's most notorious terrorist and isn't it ironic that after a while he became faded around the world as a statesman <laughs> a murdering thug who murdered countless people by his actions, not him personally but by the actions of his organization and so that's who they were dealing with uh, but the PLO of course later on whenever they relented somewhat uh, the harder liners than even them (laughs) then they took over and have taken over ever since now you have to understand something about Islam you have to understand as far as they're concerned any land anywhere in the world that they have conquered and have lost again it's a great shame It's called the great shame. And they must get it back at all costs. No matter how long it takes, no matter how many lives it takes, they must reclaim that land. So can you imagine the great shame of having Israel right in the middle of all of Muslim Arab countries? It's a great shame. And so that's why the pressure and the tension continually comes against Israel to do that. And then, of course, you have other nations like Iran. Uh, Iran is, is a rabid, anti-Israeli, anti-Jewish nation. If they had nuclear weapons, they would nuke Israel. And it's very sad that the Obama administration in America uh, has, has given in, has caved in to the demands and is saying now that their desire for nuclear Power is simply for domestic use only. <coughs> there's not one person in Israel who believes that, <laughs> not one. And I don't think there's a lot of people around the world who believes it. But America, in order again to placate the Arab Muslim nations, has gone along with this and says, "Well, we're keeping an eye on it. We'll make sure they do not get nuclear armaments they can have their nuclear power to a certain level but they can't go on and enrich so much that they can have weapons don't you believe it they will do it that's what their aim is to do that you say but they they said they have publicly said that's what they don't want to do but again Islam allows it allows to lie to the infidel if it progresses the cause of Islam you see the politicians don't understand this they don't want to understand this They think everything can just be worked out by politics, but it can't. And so, if Iran had a nuclear weapon, don't you think they would use it? Of course they would. But Western countries think, well, why would they? Why would they do something as illogical as that? Sure, they know that Israelis have got more nuclear bombs than they would ever have, and if they did that, Israel would retaliate, and they'd wipe them out too. But you see, you're not working with something rational here. You're working against an ideology, an ideology that says we want to destroy Israel at all costs, even if that means blowing ourselves up in the end. That would be the mother of all suicide bombers, wouldn't it? it doesn't, they don't care about blowing themselves up. We can see that day and daily around the world. And so no wonder Israel is constantly on alert 24-7. No wonder they're concerned. Did you hear uh, President Obama just last week or just the other day saying about that nuclear armament uh, conference around, saying about the danger of ISIS, this jihadist death cult, getting a dirty bomb? And for sure they would use it. Absolutely they would use it. And so there's a scare, even coming into the Western world. There's a fear that that would get into the wrong hands. Now, isn't it also interesting that you got to also know something else about Islam? There, there's different branches of Islam. Uh, the biggest is the Sunnis, and then there's the Shias, and then there's other. There's about three other smaller branches. So the Sunnis and the Shias are the biggest. Iran is Shia. Saudi Arabia and other big nations are Sunni. But they would kill each other in a heartbeat. (laughs) More Muslims are killed by Muslims than anybody else in the world. You know that, don't you? (coughs) Because those two groups will kill each other. And the war that's gone on in Syria, Iran is Shia, and Bashar, the president of Syria, is also Shia. And so they want to support them. But ISIS is Sunni. And so they want to destroy the leadership of Syria and overrun Syria and take it over. Actually, they'd love to take over Iran too, but Iran's very powerful. And so you've got this continually going on. But both of them, as much as they hate each other and will kill each other, both of them would unite against Israel. Both of them would do that. It's the old saying is, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so all of this tension is continually going on all over the Middle East, and particularly Israel right in the middle of it. However, Christ died for the Palestinians. Christ died for the Arabs. And Christ died for every Muslim. Every one of them needs to get saved Just as we needed to get saved They need to get saved also So we mustn't hate Those for whom Christ died Did you hear me? We mustn't hate Those for whom Christ died Now Let me just give you one more Little statement Israel is the only country in the world against which there is a written document to the fact that it must disappear. That's what they've got to live with every single day of their lives. Can you imagine living in a country where you know there's other nations whose sole aim in life is to make you disappear? And so when you see them sometimes, and they do make mistakes, and sometimes they get it wrong, and sometimes they make wrong judgments and all of that, but you can understand, and you can see. Whenever we were in Israel just a few weeks, or a few months ago, there, because it's compulsory, you have to join up, you have to be in the army, and there's so many young people. I mean, I think some of them have started shaving yet. They look that young, and oftentimes they're in the front lines, and they know that threat is hanging over them every day of their lives, and so it's a scary situation for many of them. But what about the question now of Israel and the Christians? Where does the Christian stand in relation to Israel and the Jewish people? Do we believe in replacement theology? Which, again, to remind you, is a belief that God has replaced Israel with the church. As far as Israel is concerned, he no longer has plans or purposes or his affections not with them anymore, but now it is with. The church? Or do we believe that God still has a purpose for Israel and the Jew? And in fact, that purpose has never been rescinded and it will be fulfilled. And that we as Christians should know what the purpose is, what it is prophetically and scripturally, and that we should respond accordingly. So, what is the purpose of the Jew? What is the purpose? Of Israel. It is redemptive. The purpose of Israel and the Jew is redemptive. God had a redemptive plan to redeem the sons of fallen men. That was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. He would send a redeemer, a messiah, a deliverer. He would send his own son, Jesus, to fulfill this mission. But Jesus didn't come in a vacuum, sure he didn't. There was a context in which Jesus came. Thousands and thousands of years ago, God made a covenant with Abraham. 4,000 years ago, God made a covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, to 3, "'Now the Lord had said to Abram, "'Get out of your country from your family "'and from your father's house "'to a land that I will show you, "'and I will make you a great nation.'" And I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and will curse those who curse you and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And we know that through Abraham came Isaac and Ishmael. And we know that Isaac was the son of promise but Ishmael who was Abraham's firstborn was set aside. He was not the son of promise. Now here's something else you need to know about Islam. Islam believes that Ishmael, who was the father of the Arab nations, they believe that he was the son of promise. Not Isaac, but Ishmael. That's what they believe. And so you can see there's a tension between, and that tension obviously was in the Genesis, was between Ishmael and between Isaac. And then through, through Isaac, then came Jacob and Esau. And Esau became the father of the Edomites. Edom means red. And he ate that red pottage and became known as Edom. And his lineage became known as the Edomites. And the Edomites, when you come into the New Testament, you remember how the Herod's They were Edomites. They were descendants of Esau. And that animosity was still there because Herod, the Edomite, called Edominia, but the Edomites, he was the one who wanted to kill the infant Jesus and slaughtered all those little boys in Bethlehem. And then the next one, he cut the head of John the Baptist. And then the next one, Slew James, a brother of John, with the sword. So that animosity, that hatred, that tension still flowed down through that line. And Jacob and Esau had that friction between them. And so the generational animosities that flowed are still flowing to this day. Because the descendants of Ishmael are the Arab nations, the descendants of Isaac of the Israelis and the Jewish people. Now God said he would send a redeemer. Genesis forty nine and ten. The Scepter shall not depart I have no depart there, shall not depart from Judah, nor a log from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And unto him shall be the obedience of the people. And then Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. And so God had a redemptive purpose for Israel. And the first redemptive purpose which has been fulfilled was for the saviour of the world to come through that lineage. And you can follow it from Genesis all the way through into into Matthew and into Luke. It's all written for us there. So that has been fulfilled. But there's another redemptive purpose that has unfulfilled yet but will be fulfilled. And there it is. There to be a future blessing to the whole world. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. If you believe the first one has happened, which it has, then surely you can believe the second one will happen because God's covenants are never broken and his word will never fail. So out of the peoples of this world, God formed a nation for redemptive purposes not because they were righteous or holy, because they too were sinful men. They continually rebelled against God, and God continually had to chasten them and put them into captivity and sometimes twice at least into exile, the last time for 2,000 years, till they came back in 1948. But in spite of that, God made a covenant with that nation, with that people that he's never, ever taken back. And he gave them laws to govern every aspect of their life. He gave them great promises many, many times. He delivered them and protected them and fed them and even clothed them. No other nation had these great blessings. I told you this morning, it's the only nation on earth that God made a covenant with. And so they were set apart for redemptive purposes. And although they did bring... Christ into the world as the savior of the world, yet they themselves refused his messiahship and they actually crucified him on Calvary's tree. And right there is why many believe in replacement theology They say, well, that's why God has rejected them. That's why he's finished with them forever. That's why his love now is the church and he has no future plans for Israel. That's what they say. You see, they say that God rightfully and justifiably replaced him with the church. But Apostle Paul disagrees. Paul says in 11, one of Romans, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. (laughs) He's emphatic. Paul himself was a Jew. He knew the Jewish history. He knew what they were like. He knew what he was like. (laughs) But he says God has not cast them away. And he never will cast them away. They're back to their land to stay. Never again will they ever be exiled. Never again will they leave that land. Now you're beginning to understand, I hope, why Satan and his forces have always tried to destroy Israel because he believed that God had a redemptive purpose for them. And if he could destroy them, then the redemptive purpose would also fail. And so he was always, always trying to destroy that nation that God raised up. So whether it was Pharaoh, the one who knew not Joseph, whether it was Haman in the time of Esther, whether it was Titus in AD 70, whether it was the crusaders or the Islamic invaders or Hitler just 70 years ago who systematically murdered and gassed 6 million of them. 6 million it was murder on an industrial scale. Or whether it was old Nasser of Egypt who said, we'll drive them into the sea. Or whether it was the former president of Iran, Ahmadinejad, who said, let, them, let us wipe them off the face of the earth. The world cannot see what is going on in the Middle East today other than through political eyes. They think it's political. They think it's economic. They think it's nationalistic. But it's spiritual. And it's prophetical. Hmm. And that's why we as believers, we need to know these things. We need to know these things. We need to know our scriptures as well. So let me just read you something before we go any further. I know that some of you are very uh, avid uh, readers of Dr. Michael Brown. And... uh, If I can just pick this up. Uh, He wrote an article uh, last year about the UN. He said, The UN, already infamous for its frequent displays of anti-Israeli bias, has outdone itself yet again. You have to understand the UN is the most anti-Israel organization on the face of the earth. So he says, before we get into the most recent UN shocker, it's important to understand that the UN's discriminatory treatment of Israel is so pronounced that in 2013, the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon told Jewish students Jewish students at the UN headquarters in Jerusalem that he recognized his organization's often biased attitude towards their nation, stating it was an unfortunate situation. By the way, since 2013, he's gone worse He has absolutely gone mad against Israel. Then it goes on to say, this has been a decades-long pattern. So I I recall hearing the Middle Eastern scholar from Lebanon say almost 25 years ago, when Saddam Hussein used nerve gas on his own people, the UN said nothing. When Israel uses tear gas, the UN takes action. And then cutting out a lot of this, let me just give you this. His remarks were highly exaggerated, were hardly exaggerated, and they remain accurate to this day. Groups like the UN Watch have documented UN's consistent policy of singling out Israel for rebuke and condemnation while virtually ignoring atrocities committed on a mass scale by other nations, including Israel's neighbors. To give one case in point, during the UN General Assembly's 61st session, The time spent by ambassadors on an acting 22 anti-Israeli resolution of the year was time not spent on passing a single resolution on Sudan's genocide in Darfur. So while genocide was going on a mass scale in the African nation of Darfur, the UN totally ignored it, and they spent all of that year having thing after thing against Israel, 22 of them, He says, this is incomprehensible as it is unconscionable. Just last year, 2014, this is what he means. Just last year, 2014, he's writing. Israel was condemned by the UN 20 times. Afghanistan, China, Cuba, Iraq, Sudan, Pakistan, Libya, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Venezuela were condemned zero times. Iran, Syria, North Korea were condemned just one time. Moreover, the UN Human Rights Council, which is supposed to have so much on their plate worldwide, chose instead to condemn Israel five times in March alone of that year. Now listen to this. Are you ready for the most extraordinary example to date of UN's irrational, shall we say, bordering on obsessive or even insane bias against Israel? An Israeli journalist, at the closing of the 59th UN Commission on the status of woman... She wrote, There was only one political resolution was passed, one that accused Israel of mistreating Palestinian women in all aspects of life. Yes, Israel was singled out for this treatment of women, not Saudi Arabia, where women can't even drive, let alone vote, not Afghanistan, where women have been deprived of education, not other fundamentalist Muslim nations, where honor killings of women are common where acid attacks on women are rampant where genital mutilation is practiced not other countries where women can be raped with impunity and even killed afterwards for being defiled by rape not once only Israel is singled out for criticism despite it being one of the world's true bastions of women's rights including the rights of Israeli Arab women in other words of Palestinian women living peaceably within Israeli borders they can be part even of Israeli parliament. And so you have all this continually, continually going on, even in the UN at this particular time as we speak. So let me say, hello. Israel is not perfect. Far from it. It's a secular state. It's all the attendant problems that any First Nation has, yet First World Nation has, yet it's a secular state. There are many Jews that are just cultural Jews. They're not religious Jews. So we mustn't, in our attempt to support them, we mustn't idolize them. We mustn't do that. We mustn't feel that somehow God has got a different plan of redemption for them as he has for us because he hasn't. It's the same plan. Our Savior is their Savior. Their Messiah is our Messiah. They need saving We need saving. Same Savior, same plan to save them. Never let us forget that Jesus was born a Jew. He lived all his earthly life in Israel, except for that short period in Egypt as a baby. What we hold in our hands today, our scriptures, are written by Jews. The oracles of God were given to us by Jews when Jesus left this earth he left from Israel when he comes back to this earth he will come back to Israel Satan has got his eye on Israel God has got his eye on Israel we have got our eyes on Christ and we're watchful for Israel also and so it behoves us uh, to try our best to be a blessing to Israel Uh, to try to stand with them as much as we can. Let me just end with these few short statements by Jack Hayford. Jack Hayford is recognized as a great Pentecostal statesman in America. He's one of the most highly respected Pentecostal leaders in the world. And he's got a great love for Israel. And he's asking about standing with Israel. And he gives us some reasons why we should stand with Israel. He says, this is not about politics. This is about the word of God. But the political ramifications are extremely dramatic. Scripture declares that there will come a time when all the nations of the world will turn against Israel. And we know what those scriptures are in the Bible. The great battle of Armageddon. And so it is highly conceivable this could happen in our time that it is critical to outline why we should stand for Israel today. First of all, every believer is charged to make the Jews a priority in their value system and to render thanksgiving from their hearts for God's work through them as a people. And I've just given you tonight just a few things why we should be thankful for them. So understanding the basis of the attention that we give to the Jews has to do with understanding God's divine order and the things God said. It involves people and it involves a land. Every believer is charged to make Jews a priority in their value system because God has ordained that. The Lord has selected a people. And then He goes on, giving a whole ream of scriptures and so forth, but I'll skip down quickly. So Scripture speaks to us very clearly. We're dealing with the roots of everything that has to do with the revelation of God to humankind. The proof of this is in the very existence of the Jews as a people and the fact that they have been recovered as a nation. Today the struggle is over Jerusalem, over Israel, and over the presence of the Jews and their right to have a land. There are few nations willing to make an abiding commitment to stand by the Jews in Israel, but the Bible says God will honor those who do. Secondly, our place in God's present order inextricably links us with the Jews as a people and thereby the land of Israel according to the word of God. Three, God has made unique declarations regarding the land of Israel, which has never been rescinded. And again, he gives a lot of scriptures, which we have shown some of them this morning regarding God's promises to Israel and to the Jewish people. So he says, when we talk about Israel, we're dealing with a piece of property that God has made pronouncements about and God is willing, God's people to whom he has given the land. It's a major issue with the creator of all things. It's non-negotiable. Things that God has said uniquely about Israel have never been rescinded. Not only does the land belong to God, but God has also committed the land to Abraham and his offspring forever. Fourthly, Israel's present conflict is neither by their initiative nor perpetuated by expansionism or racism on their part. They are simply trying to survive in their own country. The general attitude of the world today regards the Palestinians as the underdog, but Israel is defending the land covenant to them in 1917 and established by the United Nations Assembly in 1948. So that's legal. They are legally possessing their own land. They're made out to be illegal occupiers, but they're not. It's actually a legal document. The Palestinian goal is not to secure a homeland, but to drive Israel out altogether. For the sake of mounting public opinion against Israel and surrounding well-resourced Arab nations have never offered refuge to the Palestinians. The majority of the world doesn't know this, and nobody's bothering to tell them because sympathies are overridden by other forces. Fifthly, to stand with Israel is not to oppose Arab peoples as an entity or to oppose the rights of Arabs living in Israel to a peaceful, politically secure and prosperous life. God has no disposition against any human being, certainly not Arabs, who are the offspring of Ishmael, the other son of his chosen leader, Abraham. Standing for Israel doesn't require an anti-Arab stance. It doesn't require us to be loveless towards other peoples. Sixthly, we're almost finished. The relentless animosity of the sectors of the Arab world are not merely political causes, but are driven by spiritual powers that will not be satisfied to Israel ceases to exist. That's what the world doesn't get. That's what the politicians don't understand. That's what the media doesn't see. This is a spiritual problem. At the root of it is a spiritual problem, and they don't get that. And that's why they can't solve it politically. Yes, there will come a day. When the one man will rise up, the Antichrist, and will make a pact with Israel. But we know that that pact will not last. It cannot last because of his hatred against the Jewish people. So this has been perpetuated for generation for generation. The forces opposed to Israel are not simply those of people who don't like Jews. We're caught in the stream of spiritual forces greater than humanity, forces that cannot be overthrown politically or by the power of persuasion. These forces can only be broken by intercessory prayer where principalities and powers are cast down. Seven, the same spirit driving these animosities is equally opposed to Christians as to Jews and in time will eventually bring persecution to both. Now that's interesting. That's interesting because at the moment in the Middle East, The ones who are defending the Christians Are the Jews (laughs) The ones who stand up for Christians In the Middle East Are the Jews Hardly anybody in the West Is standing up for Christians Who are being persecuted Left, right and centre But the Jews have stood up for them Because they know what it's like To be persecuted just as Scripture states, there are two witnesses that will be put to death in Jerusalem at the very end of time in Revelation 11. There have been two witnesses that have stood for God throughout history, the Jews and the Christians. And that's why satanic forces are against the Jews and the Christians. And then finally, number eight, a biblical assignment and a divine promise summon or stand in faith or intercession with Acts. Ex- expectation under support with promise. We're called to stand with Israel today because we could be the people of the last hour. The Lord has called us to be people with moral and biblical conviction, walking wisely and knowing his word. He will honor those who make an abiding commitment to stand with the land he's called uniquely his own. And so, as believers, as Christians, we need to stand for Israel. And we need to pray for Israel. We need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for the completeness, the wholeness. We're living in an age that we're drawing close to the end of times as we know it. And the tensions will increase dramatically towards Israel and towards the Christian. And we're seeing that for so long it's been the Israel and the Jew that's come under this pressure, but now in the Western world we're seeing it's the Christian also that's coming under the pressure and the Middle Eastern countries are being slaughtered, but now we here in the West, we're coming under pressure also that is a spiritual thing, it's not political it's spiritual, and it can only be dealt with spiritually which is why we need to be informed and we need to know, and we need to pray, and need to know why we're praying and what we're praying about And so, today I've tried my best. I know it's been a kind of a bit of a history thing for some of you, but I've tried my best to inform you. I know that a number of you probably didn't know much about that. I'm not saying that in a condescending way. I'm just saying as a fact. So we've tried to inform you so that you can pray more intelligently when you think about the situation. And when you watch TV, don't get swayed by the media. And even if Israel today makes the biggest mistake imaginable, there's still a covenant with them. And one day, one day, not only will those dry bones that are coming together as Ezekiel saw in that vision, but one day God will breathe new life into them. Spiritual new life. And one day all Israel shall be saved. They shall look at him in whom they have pierced and they'll recognize their Messiah. As the Lord Jesus Christ. That day hasn't arrived yet, but it will come. And thank God for the messianic believers that are in Israel today. You're going to meet a messianic Israeli pastor in just a few weeks. Avi Mizraki, who is a dedicated Israeli pastor who loves God, who meets regularly with Christian Arab pastors, <laughs> with people from Muslim backgrounds who have come into faith, but are find it very, very difficult to express that, particularly if they live in Gaza. Could mean their death, actually. Very, very dangerous. But he, he, he works with them. And, and Arab pastors and Palestinian pastors. And we, we, we were at a conference. There was a whole... You, in fact, you can, get it on the, you can get it online. You can hear them talking about it. And how they work together and pray together and worship together. And, and Now, there's lots of political differences. They don't agree politically. And culturally, there's big differences. But in Christ, they come together. And they've even washed each other's feet at certain times. So you're going to meet this brother. He's a lovely, precious brother. We had him here years and years ago, and he's still on the go, and his work is still continuing. In fact, it's getting bigger because there's thousands now of Messianic Jews in Israel, whereas before there was just a handful. So these are exciting days. These are tremendous times. I may just, in, in what may just in, in one more uh, session, uh, I'll maybe try to explain to you about this replacement theology. And show you why it's so wrong. Because a big part of the church believes it. And it's been very destructive against Israel. The church has not a good record against Israel. really hasn't. It is a bad record against Israel. And that's why many Israelis, they really struggle with Christians because of their history. With Christians slaughtering them, during the crusades and all of that stuff. So there's a big background to that. So we just need to take a little bit of time and just... Show you that too, again, to help you to pray. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you make eternal plans, and your plans are big. Your plans encompass the whole earth, every human being on it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Lord, you even have plans, Lord, for the Arabs and the Egyptians. Lord, your scriptures even tell us that. So Lord, you're not finished yet. There's still much to be accomplished. And we thank you, Lord, that your hand is on the pulse of everything that's going on on planet Earth. There's nothing going on that you don't know about. And we thank you, Lord, that your plans are good. And so, Lord, today as we have listened and hopefully learned a little bit about Israel and the land and the people. We pray, Lord, that that will get into our consciousness. And Lord, it will pray more and understand better about your plans and purposes for that little piece of land. We thank you, Lord, that you're coming back again, and that's where you're coming to. Lord, that's where you'll judge the nations one day, and so we bless you, Lord, and we give you thanks in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk